0: I was going to say Happy New Year, but I was told yesterday that y- yesterday was the last day to greet someone with Happy New Year. There's a statute of limitations on when you're allowed to do that. <laughs> I uh, regret to inform that I'm not Dennis Lewis, so we, uh, we're we committed as a church to giving him some breaks at the beginning of the year after a busy holiday season, and so I was grateful to hear from George Granberry last week, and when Dennis asked uh, the other day, I was happy to do this. It's a privilege to preach God's word to you. Um, If you can turn in your Bibles to Romans 8, 31 through 39, just by way of introduction, I want to talk about why I want to look at these verses. I read an article late last fall that was titled, The Unbearable Burden of Making Meaning. Meaning. The article itself was, was pretty good, but I, I love the title. The Unbearable Burden of Making Meaning. What the author was describing is when we try to create our purpose, our meaning, our why. Why do we exist? And it's a challenge, I think, at any age. Um, the last year was a kind of a milestone year for me. I turned 50 had my first colonoscopy, all these things that happen that you don't really want to happen but are important to do, and you begin to think about things like, did my life matter? Am I really situated in my purpose right now? As I've thought more about this, I believe the idea of making meaning is unbearable. We cannot create our own meaning, and if we try it's crushing. And so the good news is, I believe that purpose and meaning starts with identity. Who we are leads to what we are to do. And the good news is that our identity has already been established. And the more that we are rooted and established in, in who we are, we have a better understanding of what our purpose is. I saw a quote once from Paul Tripp, who said, you will either receive your identity vertically or you'll shop for it horizontally. I'll repeat that because I wrote it down when I heard it. You will either receive your identity vertically or shop for it horizontally. Last week, George did a wonderful job of explaining who Paul was before he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. Nobody was shopping harder for their identity than Paul was before he met Jesus. You saw that list of accomplishments in his life that Paul Paul listed that George read last week, that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he was a persecutor of the church. With regards to the law, he was blameless. He was shopping hard for his identity until he met Jesus and received it vertically. So we have here in the book of Romans these first eight chapters where Paul goes to great lengths to proclaim and explain these foundational truths to who we are. I mean, glorious truths that we're all familiar with that we are saved by grace, that we're justified by faith, that we are adopted into his family, that we have life in the Spirit. And he comes now to these verses, 31 and 30 through 39, to reinforce them for us as to who. We are, and by therefore helping us understand what we are to do. So hear God's word, Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. Father, we thank you for the good gift of your living word. I pray, Father, for the courage to handle it carefully, that it may be of encouragement to us today. May it be for your glory and for our good that you might encourage our hearts in the certainty of your love for us even now. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It is true of all Christians in all times and all places that we've struggled, struggled to trust that God really loves us, that he's actually for us. The good news is that he does, and he never gets tired of reminding us, of convincing our doubting hearts of this unchanging, unfailing love for us in Christ Jesus because he knows that Satan and the world and even our own hearts fight against the belief that it's true. The verses that I didn't read, which are, are familiar, set the table for this. God's, God's great purpose in Romans eight twenty nine, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's his great purpose for us, to conform us to the likeness of his Son. So if that's God's great purpose, we have to understand That Satan's great purpose would be to thwart that, to make us doubt that God actually loves us, to unsettle us, to rob us of this peace, to make us doubt our identity and thus be confused about our purpose. So he gives us these five questions here to give us confidence that we're secure, to give us assurance. So I just want to take these questions in order here. I'll kind of group them together, one and two three and four, and then five. I, I don't really even have points today, everybody. I want us to know who we are and what we're called to do. So it's, maybe it's a two-pointer here today. Question number one that Paul asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, if the question is just who can be against us, well, any, anything, anybody can be against us. But the deeper question is who can effectively be against us. John Knox, the covenanter, once said, one man plus God equals a majority. So if you think about all creation being on one side of the field and me and God on the other side, I win every time. God is a majority in and of himself no matter what. He he is for us. But why? Why is God for us? Why is God for you? Why is God for me? Because of something that we did? Absolutely not. He's for us because he wants to be for us. He's not for us because of us, but because of what he has done for us. Not for anything that I've done or you've done, but always for what he's done and what he's done for all those who are in Christ. The good news there is if it's not about what I've done, there's nothing that I can do to change that. How can we trust that he loves us, that he's for us? Well, look at question number two, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Why can we ultimately be confident that God is for us? that he will provide everything we need to conform us to the image of his son. It's because he's given us that which was most precious, that which was most costly. He's given for us. He's paid the most expensive price of all. Therefore, he will not stop there, but continue to give us everything that we need to be conformed to the image of his son. Uh, Several years ago, as a family, we took um, a trip out west to visit the national parks in Utah and Arizona, and we put uh, a lot of time and money into this trip. We spent months planning it out, mapping our route, figuring out how many nights and days we'd stay at each park, figuring out, you know, which hotels and Airbnbs we need to settle on. So we didn't um, spare any expense. We Bought plane tickets. We rented a van. We made those reservations and we took off. Our first park that we arrived at was Zion National Park. And we drove up to the front gate and the friendly um, ranger said, hey, welcome. Can I see your pass? I said, oh, we don't have a pass. He goes, well, all, all it is is $70. It's an annual pass that will get you into every national park for a whole year. And I said, $70? And I backed up the van and drove back to the airport and we flew all the way home two weeks early. We really, we didn't do that. <laughs> I mean, it's a very, very silly example, but you've not put all the time and effort into planning and paying and getting to this point and then turn back for $70. You don't buy a computer and not get the power cord. And God the Father does not give us his own son to redeem us, to not continue to conform us to his likeness. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. He paid the greatest price he could pay is forever invested in us, and he's not done. That's how we know that he will give us all things. That's how we know he won't stop, that he loves us and will love us all the way home. Questions three and four, verses 33 and 34, Paul moves into more judicial language. This is not merely relational, um, but there's also this reality that sin demands justice. So verse 33 and 34 read, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Similar to the first question, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Anyone and everyone. Family, who know us the best. Friends and neighbors, coworkers, our enemies. Satan, even our very selves, were really good at condemning ourselves and one another. But as with the first question, it doesn't matter. God, who is the judge, is also the justifier. There's no court of appeal above his court. The good news is God doesn't plead our case on our own merits. Who could stand? No. He pleads our case by pointing to his son. He puts forth Jesus. And the decision is final. All of our charges, all of our sin have been placed on Jesus. Our condemnation has been fully taken away by Christ, the one who died, who was raised, who is at the right hand, and who intercedes right now for you. Ever and always. I want to focus on... On two things here. First, Jesus has taken every ounce of condemnation upon himself and given us his righteousness. That is the gospel. We are free now and for always. His blood satisfied the need for divine justice. It counters every charge past, present, and future. I like to think of this in a courtroom setting that God sits as judge, Satan as prosecutor, Jesus in the stand on our behalf, and the Spirit as our attorney, as our advocate, as this plays out for each and every one of us. Satan hurls charge after charge at us. And we have two advocates, Jesus in heaven, the Spirit in our hearts, advocating over and over and over again. As Satan points out my hypocrisy They point at Jesus. Satan points out my immorality. They point at Jesus. He points out my anger, my selfishness. Over and over again, they point at Jesus. He's taken every single dart, countered every single charge. Satan has no power to condemn. I hope you can hear that has no power to condemn but he loves to accuse Satan cannot actually diminish our assurance our standing with God he cannot lessen God's love for me or the effectiveness of Christ's work on the cross for me so he does the only thing that he can do he seeks to make us doubt God's love he can't change it So he wants us to believe it's not real. So again and again, he brings up those things for which we've been forgiven. Things that we've repented of, he brings them up so that we will despair. He brings them up so that we will actually identify with them. Questioning our identity, identifying with our sin. Saints, uh, Satan wants us to think that beating ourselves up for our sin is an a godly thing to do. But there's a big difference between biblical conviction for our sin and self-loathing and hatred. Examining what you are doing is important. Biblical conviction for sin drives us to Jesus. Self-hatred drives us away from Jesus. And This is what Satan is counting on. The second thing I want us to notice here is that the Trinity has been involved with this plan from all time. The only ones who can condemn you are fully behind you, completely for you. God knew every single thing about you when he set his love upon you. Jesus is at the right hand of God right now, continually interceding for you. You have the Holy Spirit within you praying on your behalf. It's a Trinitarian work. They've always known you. They've always loved you. So that takes us to question five. Verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hits at maybe the question that we wonder about the most. We can give our assent. Theologically, we understand substitutionary atonement. We understand the freedom that we have in Christ. But sometimes we really struggle to think that, will He always love me? That nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. And Paul's making clear here again and again that this love doesn't change. Nothing can separate us. No one, no thing. He lists out possible adversaries. He lists out possible adversities. None of these things can actually separate us. Nothing now, nothing ever, no corner of creation even ends with a catch-all or anything else in all creation. Paul's own experience confirms this. Every one of those things listed in verse 35, he experienced tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and eventually the sword. He was convinced of the perseverance of God's love. Now, the thing to note here is God's promise is not that suffering will never afflict us, but that it will never separate us from God's love. A a prosperity gospel has snuck into the church, snuck into our hearts, that I'm not supposed to suffer as a Christian. Some call this a realized eschatology, that what is true of me is that there will be no tears, no pain, no suffering, no death. That's on the other side of heaven. It's on the other side of this life. It's when we try to bring those truths to now, which are then, that we begin to struggle with God's love for us. Our theology of suffering is sometimes an issue for us. When I insist that God order my life according to my will, it makes me angry. It makes me doubtful. Does he really love me? but when instead I can view my hardships and suffering as God's work in me to make me more like Jesus, then I become free. Suffering is actually evidence of our union with Christ, not a case for doubting his love. When we are in him, we are joined to his sufferings, his death and his resurrection. We're we're the little brothers and the little sisters of the suffering conqueror. Through him, we get to suffer and conquer as well. And through it all, we're becoming more and more conformed to his likeness. We tend to limit God to the imperfect love that we've experienced in our life the imperfect love that we give, the imperfect love that we receive. But God does not love like we do. His love is not fickle, it does not change with our response, our performance. It's constant, unchanging, and always true. Because that's who he is. But again, Satan doesn't want us to believe it. He wants us to fear that God's love can be yanked away at any time. That his love has limits. That his love has conditions. That his love has an expiration date. That his love, once we've exceeded it, that he's going to be through with us. Brothers and sisters, it's just not true. It's a lie from the evil one. He cannot change the truth of God's love or separate me from it, but he will do everything in his power to make us doubt it. God set his love upon you with his eyes wide open. He knew the worst about you at the time that he did it. Nothing you can do can change it. Nothing that Satan can do can make him change it. Because of what Christ did on the cross, God is for us. And if you take nothing else from the day, I hope you take those four words. God is for us. It's a succinct summary of the gospel, this unchanging truth that he is always on our side. God is for us. So that's who we are. We're the ones who are always loved. We're the ones for which he is always for. It's an identity that we have received vertically and not shopped for horizontally. We are forever loved children of the king. We have an unchanging assurance that we are his. So if that's our identity, what's our purpose? Like I said, it's unbearable trying to make our own purpose, to make our own meaning. But once we are rooted and established in the identity of who we are, this naturally flows out of what our purpose is. What meaning are we to make? What's the ultimate goal of our assurance? I'd argue it's to love the same way. It's the very thing Satan does not want us to do and why he tries to make us doubt our identity. Look, Romans 12, flows next out of Romans 8. And I'm not going to read the entirety of it, but we are being instructed to love others as the Lord loves us. Listen to these words, just snippets from Romans chapter 12. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What's our purpose? It's to be for others, as God is for us. It's to spare nothing, as he spared nothing for us. It's to not keep track of offense. It's to not allow anything to separate others from our love. It takes boldness and courage to love others well, to live differently, to live what I want to call a saved life instead of a safe life to be conformed to the image of Christ. The words safe and saved are very similar, it's the same root word, this idea of salvation, of safety and security. We call this place the sanctuary. It's a place of safety, place of refuge. But Christians, I believe, are not called to be safe, but to be saved. Our assurance that we've just talked about, our certainty of the Father's love for us ought to give us confidence that we might boldly love others and follow God to wherever he might lead. Some of you have heard this story before, but I I share it again for this purpose of talking about a safe versus a saved life. A young man named William William in 1904 graduated from high school. And for the gift, from his family, he received a trip around the world. And over the course of a year, young William traveled and saw people groups, countries, nations, tribes, and saw an overwhelming lack of knowledge of the Lord, of changed lives. He returned from this trip and went off to college, and it was in college that his heart continued to be broken for the people groups that did not know the Lord. And so as he neared graduation, he told his family that he was making the decision to go to seminary in preparation to be a missionary to Muslims in China. Now, to the world, William's choices are a little bit its a big deal. You add to the fact that his name was William Borden, He was the heir to the Borden dairy fortune. He was already a millionaire. He was turning his back on that to pursue these these people. William Borden boarded a ship to head to Cairo after he graduated from seminary. He made it to Cairo because that's where he was going to have his studies in Arabic. One month after landing, one month into his studies, he contracted spinal meningitis, and in days he was dead. Again, the world looks at this and sees a wasted life, an odd choice. William Borden's life was not a safe life. It was a saved life, an assured life that God was for him. He was able to choose a path counter to the world's wisdom and confidence that he was secure in Christ, secure to love other people with God's love. Let's look at the Apostle Paul, who's writing these words. He's approximately 60 years old as he's writing this, making preparations to go to Spain and to do this all over again. How? Everything he's experienced, the shipwrecks, the beatings, the imprisonment, the hunger, the nakedness, the all these things that he's experienced, He's getting ready to go again at 60 years of age. Why? How? Because he's convinced that nothing can separate him from the love of God, that the saved life compels him to go and to keep going and keep sharing the love that he didn't deserve but knows is real. He was a self exalting, God opposing, Christ persecuting Christian killer. He deserved the worst and yet he received the best therefore he's compelled to tell others now you don't have to die young to prove that you've got a saved life you don't have to be a missionary to another country in order to live a saved life the good news is i mean the great thing is we can do it at whatever age whatever season of life whatever job or calling we currently have we can live a saved life I hope in hearing the answers to these questions in these verses today that you receive some measure of comfort and confidence that God is for you. I was preparing for this yesterday. Um, it's, a, it's a weighty thing to preach and to think, how, what do people need to hear? And so I trust that some of you need to hear about your assurance, that you need to hear about God's love, that he really loves you, that he's really for you, that, he, that nothing will ever change that love. But maybe even more than that today, you needed to hear, in addition to that, maybe you needed someone to tell you to stop living a safe life. Comfort can be paralyzing. Maybe there's a person on your street, at work, at school, at the store that you know is not a Christian. And you know that I probably should say something. I probably should broach the topic with them. The safe life keeps us from it. I don't want to risk rejection. I don't want to risk the status quo. I don't want to risk my reputation. I don't want to risk being thought of as a weirdo. And so the safe life keeps me from it. But the safe life says love them more than your reputation. Step into the uncomfortable. Step into the awkward. Maybe, maybe there's a person that you've been holding a grudge against. And they may know about it, they may have no clue about it. Perhaps there's a situation in which you've been withholding forgiveness. You've been withholding it for so long that it's just gotten so awkward to ever bring it up. The peaceful thing to do is to not rock the boat. It's safe. But the saved life says you've been loved with a love, you've been forgiven. I'm going to pursue this person. I'm going to confess my grudge. I'm going to offer forgiveness. I'm going to be reconciled. Maybe you're like me. By the way, all these things are me. I'm just gonna, maybe you're like me, and it's, it's very easy to live a safe life hiding behind a personality profile or acknowledgement of what your gifts are and what your gifts are not. I'm an introvert. And I can say, I don't really want to be with people very much, and so therefore I don't need to be with people very much. I even have a coffee cup on my desk at work that says, Please hesitate to reach out to me. <laughs> but there's a problem when I lean more into my personality profile than I do into other people, than I do into my identity in Christ and my call to love. Maybe I think I don't have this particular gift to do this particular act. I'll tell you this. A church that acts, a church that behaves saved instead of safe absolutely terrifies Satan. As a saved church, there is so much that we can do. When we truly trust in who we are in Christ. That we are loved beyond measure with an unchanging love. We are free. And Satan hates it when we realize this. It's how the church grows. It's how the church prevails. There are so many needs around us in this church, outside in this community in which we're placed. We have people struggling with addiction, People are just flat out exhausted, exhausted with their work, exhausted having the same conversation 15 times a day with their little ones, people whose marriages are hanging on by a thread, people are struggling with mental health, physical health, finances, employment situations, opportunities abound to live a saved life, to give ourselves away in service, to secure in who we are. This place should be the safest place in the world, to come in and confess our sin, to confess our need, that we might in turn love as we've been loved. And so we do. We return here week after week to be reminded of these great truths, of who we are, that we can therefore go for what our meaning is, to go in confidence of our purpose, to know I'm loved, to know that I won't be ever let go of, and then to in turn, to turn around and love like Jesus. It doesn't have to be grand gestures. Like I said, you don't have to sail around the world. You don't have to go take Arabic. Just reach out, texts and phone calls, notes, prayers just imparting time is an incredible gift to people to let them know that they're seen let them know that they're known one last word on William Borden after his death in Cairo his belongings were boxed up and shipped back to his parents and in his box of belongings they found his bible and in the back of his bible were three entries Three different dates. The first date was the date that he decided while going to sem- go, he wanted to go to seminary because of this call to missions. The second date was the date that he was sailing for Cairo. And the third entry was the date just days before he died. And next to each date were words. The first entry on the date of going to seminary, he wrote, No reserves. The second date he wrote, as he sailed away, no retreat. And on the last entry, right before he died, he wrote no regrets. May we have confidence in the unchanging love of God for us that why we might begin to love in the way that we've been loved. May pray for us? Father, we thank you that you are for us in our frailty, and our fears, and our failures. You are for us in our weakness, in our worries, and in our work. May we see every hardship as ultimately for our good, purposed to make us more like Jesus. Help us to know that salvation is not at all dependent on how we feel or how much belief we can muster. Help us to know, Father, that we are secure, despite our wrestling and despite our doubt. Our security is found outside of ourselves. Our very identity is from you. Father, may the assurance that you are for us give us confidence to live saved lives over safe lives. And whatever calling we pursue, loving others with the same kind of love that has always held us, will never let us go. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.